from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave, give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God <clears throat> about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for those who are, that are contrary to nature. And the men exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. O Father, we pray you meet us in this very difficult text. We pray that you show the truth of the gospel and the grace of the gospel, and that you meet us wherever we find ourselves as we hear this text. So give us illumination and help us to know that you are always a God that moves towards us, sinners, and not away. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting, I apologize. You chose the one Sunday to visit. Well, we'll be preaching on the topic of homosexuality. What you should know is... There's been 20 sermons that have gone before this sermon to help give some context, and there'll be 10 more sermons that come after it to help apply and understand it. And I do actually recommend you listen to all of them. <laughs> this, of course, is a radioactive text. It's like a spiritual version of yellow cake. You know what that is? It's uranium that you, uh, if you don't handle with care, you could detonate and you could have a nuclear disaster on your hand. And in many ways, Romans 1 is yellow cake. It's spiritual yellow cake. Of course, it has been a text of terror. It has been a text that has been used to bludgeon gay people. And the history of interpretation of this text is not pretty at all. On the other hand, and more recently, this text has um, been interpreted and set in context and understood and but almost now it's to the point where this text is 
so specific to Paul's context and situation that it's almost irrelevant, and it doesn't apply to us today. And my, my goal this morning is, is somewhat simple. <laughs> it's simply to put this text in context. It's to help us understand what actually Paul is saying and what he is not saying, and, and how exactly this applies to our own situation today and our own understanding of homosexuality. And so I want us to consider um, what this text means. And to help us understand, as Christians, we said that, the word of the Lord, and we said thanks be to God, and I, I'm sure that some of you as were not maybe necessarily feeling thankful about this text. And it's, it's a hard text, right? A lot of Scripture is hard. And the reality is, though, that we believe that this text isn't simply Paul's opinions about the world but actually God's view as inspired text. And so we are the kind of church and Christians that believe that ultimately it's the authority of Scripture that binds us, however painful and difficult that is. And again, I would just point back to the last 20 sermons as <laughs> that we're not singling out anybody in particular here. So I want to give you four contexts to consider this, this text. One, the, the context of the argument of Romans the context of the doctrine of creation, which Paul has in the background as he is talking, the context of Roman society, and then also the context of Milwaukee. So the first thing to attend to, and very briefly, is just where does this text, where does this fall in the broader letter of Romans, and what is Paul doing here? And it's important to know that the, the, that the letter of Romans was written likely in the mid-60s of the first century to a congregation of mixed Jews and Gentiles, and why Paul wrote, the actual reason why he wrote isn't always clear, but one of the clear purposes of this letter is Paul is helping to make sense of this mixed racial group. Judaism before Jesus was an incredibly ethnocentric religion, and it was incredible, it was just absolutely incredible that God had opened up the doors to non-Jewish people to be included. And a lot of Jews were having difficulty doing that. And so Paul's writing this letter, and he's trying to help them understand that the gospel is for Jews and for Greeks. It's for all people. And there's a statement that comes right before um, our text where Paul lays out really his purpose, which is really to unfold the glory of the gospel, the glory of salvation, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is re- for for in it that is the gospel a righteousness of God is revealed from for from faith to faith for it is written the righteous shall live by faith so the whole purpose of this letter is to to show the glory of the gospel the glory of salvation and you in throughout this letter Paul is overcome at times where it's just so glorious that he breaks into doxology and we we had that and even in, in what we read this morning. But in order to establish the reality of salvation, the first point he has to make is, why do people need to be saved? And so the very first three chapters of the Romans is a universal indictment of Paul, of Jew and Greek. And it's the most comprehensive statement about the fallenness of human beings from top to bottom, from Jew to Greek, male to female, just thoroughly fallen and in need of salvation. And that's what Paul is doing in particular in this text. And he is surgical and strategic in how he applies the doctrine of sin and the fall to the Jewish situation, 
but also to the Gentile situation. And it's this chapter, this text right here in particular, that Paul has in mind Greeks, the nations, the non-Jews. So before we head into this text and hear what Paul has to say here about homosexuality, it's really important, it's really, really important for you to understand that, that the book of Romans is a, it's the most glorious book on the meaning of salvation. It's the most comprehensive, it's the most systematic and full presentation of what is Christianity and what is salvation. And understanding that it's a book that is really a message about grace and hope and the cross of Christ. And so, even though we're sort of focusing in on one specific set of verses, it's so important to keep that larger context in mind. But as we look to the actual verses themselves, we have to consider the context of creation, because that's the context in which Paul is thinking and writing as he addresses these verses. In the opening verse, what Paul is doing is he's trying to establish the universal sinfulness of humanity. And he has Gentile people in mind in particular. That's most, probably most the variety of us, right? Gentile people, non-Jewish people. So he's talking to us. And there's a question that Paul, an objection that Paul is already beginning to try to answer with these. And the question is this, how can the nations, non-Jews, those who didn't grow up with the stories, how can the nations be held accountable for the sin they have never heard, for sin if they've never even heard of this God? How can you be held accountable? And so Paul then dumps into this rather sophisticated argument. And he says this, in reality, there's no such thing as ignorance of God. There's no such thing as ignorance of God. We're all born with a knowledge of God, just like monarch butterflies are inborn with a sense of flying to Mexico to, to mate. And to, that it, nobody taught them to do that. They, that's just part of the wiring. And what Paul is saying here is that all human beings have been given the knowledge of God. It's, as the philosophers say, some philosophers, it's properly basic. It's part of the framework of being human, to be created in the image of God. But the problem is, is that we have suppressed the truth at a deep level, at a precognitive level almost. We've, we've suppressed the truth that, we, that there is a God. And so what Paul is saying here, and he's not just fixating on one specific sin or a list of vice in the Roman world and the Greek world that all Greek Jews would have been like, yeah, you know, those dirty, nasty, sexually perverse Gentiles. Paul is actually, what he's doing here is he's, he's sketching, in a sense, a primal fall for Gentile people. In a sense, he's, he's, he's explaining it the fall that you get in Genesis 1 through 3, he's actually taking those categories and he's applying it into a, a Greek context. And, he's, and so it's universal. It's not specific to any single person or individual or specific groups of people, but it actually describes all of humanity. And history, according to Paul, is governed by this primal rebellion. This primal rebellion against the Creator God. In verse 21... It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, here, I just want to say this clearly. And again, this is a hard text, and it's been misinterpreted a lot, and it's often been a bludgeon. Now, Paul is not saying that sexuality itself is a reason for the rebellion. And I, I talked about this a number of weeks ago, that the original sin was not sexual in nature. It was simply rebellion. It was simply, I don't want God to be God. I want to be God. I want the knowledge of good and evil. I want the, the power to say what I think is right and wrong. 
And, and Paul marks it here as not honoring God and not being thankful. And so this is the, this is the root of sin. This is the deepest root. This is the sin beneath the sin is rebellion in the form of not recognizing God for being the God who created us, but also ingratitude, a ref- a thinking the world is ours, that God owes us in a sense. And so there's this, ter- there's this primal rebellion in a sense that leads then to this next stage for Paul. And in a way, what Paul is doing, he's, he's actually given us a... a uh, you know, a, a picture of the different stages of the fall, in a sense. This leads to this, leads to this. And after the primal rebellion, what he notes is this terrible exchange. There's been a terrible exchange that's taken place. And that terrible exchange is really idolatry. He says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Because they exchange here, again, this word is used three times in this text, exchanged the truth of God, truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so the terrible exchange is this. God the creator, the object of our worship and, and devotion, has been exchanged for created things. Things that are actually less than us as human beings. It's a very bad deal. Like, we took a very bad deal. (laughs) And it ends up debasing us and dehumanizing us. And so then we get to this point about the wrath of God. Now again, when we think about the wrath of God, and you read this, the very first word where Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now, when we think wrath, we think like movies, and, or we think of these, these sort of stories of, of fire and brimstone, of God raining down fire and brimstone, God bringing judgment with the sword, or, or a kind of explicit punitive kind of recompense. But in Romans here in particular, what God means by wrath, what Paul means by wrath is very different. Because wrath here is actually this phrase he says, he gave them up. The consequence of the terrible exchange of the idolatry is that God gives up. And so, in other words, wrath is not God actually actively punishing. It's actually God not intervening. It's God's refusal to intervene. It's him basically saying, you want this? Okay, fine, you can have it. It's like the child, you know, as parents, right, we, we often tell our children, don't do that. And we tell, and there's times that it's a life and death consequence. You shouldn't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. And at times, as parents, we know that we have to intervene from our little child running too close to the sidewalk out in the road because they'll get hit. We have to intervene, right? And they're very upset. And see, God's, here's what God, I mean, the ultimate form of wrath, and even, I mean, is, is simply for God to not do anything at all, to see us hurtling towards destruction and to be like, okay, and that's, what, that's the theme of wrath here, is that God refuses to intervene. And so when we get back to this question of sexual disorder, and this is very key, and it's very nuanced, but please just be patient. It's important for us to understand what Paul is saying and he isn't saying. What he is saying is this. He's saying, so uh, sexual disorder is not, pro- it's not the provocation for God's wrath. So in other words, don't read this text and say, it's because of all the gays that God is you know, bringing fire and judgment down. That's not what this text is saying. He's actually, Paul, what Paul is saying is that, that same-sex practice and all the other vice lists, remember, it's not just homosexuality that Paul has in view here. There's a long list of vice that also can be included in this. And this isn't, this isn't the provocation of God's wrath. It's actually the sign of his wrath. 
And again, now this is very sort of subtle what Paul is saying, because what he's saying is actually, in a sense, these sins are a sign of God's wrath because he refused to intervene. And so the primal sin, what does it do? It leads to more sin and more sin. And God refuses to intervene, and we sort of hurdle ourselves downward into the abyss. And so it's so important for us to understand that what, what, what Paul is saying here about the manifestation of God's wrath around sexual sin is not that in and of itself, that is the, that, that is, you know, the occurrence of God's wrath. It's actually the sign that we've drifted so far away from our Creator. And you have to notice, though, and this is why it's very hard to get around this text as, as not saying what it seems to be saying. <laughs> because Paul clearly has a creational context in mind here. And he's clearly appealing to uh, same-sex practice as actually another sign of the terrible exchange. He's, he's saying that, again, Paul as a Jew steeped in the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created them, male and female. He created them. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And, and what Paul is, is, and this is what Jesus quotes this, and Paul is saying is that, that as human beings, we've drifted so far away from the Creator that we've, all these terrible exchanges have happened. I know these are really hard things to hear in our culture. It's very hard for me to say them, to be sure. It's very hard for us to wrap our minds around how Paul is thinking and the idea that, that, that this is a sinful activity. And I think it's important for us to step back a bit now and to put a little bit more context in the Roman world and how homosexuality in the Roman world looked differently from our own understanding. And... Um, the first thing to say is this, is that in the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, um, same-sex relationships and practice was broadly affirmed. Um, it was not a big deal. <clears throat> and you had a lot of different kinds of same-sex practice. So you had what's called pederasty, which is probably the most, was the most common version, especially amongst sort of wealthy, well-to-do Roman citizens. And it usually involved an older man and a younger boy or a younger man. Another was, for sure, uh, sex in the Roman world. Same sex and opposite sex was incredibly, incredibly exploitative. Uh, Roman citizens, again, slavery was just part of the fabric of society. The economy was built on it. The sexual economy of the ancient world was built on slavery. Because as a slave, as a wealthy person, or as a, you know, an actually average Roman citizen, you would probably have slaves. And those slaves, whether male or female, were basically yours to do with. And so, sex with your slaves was a very common thing. Nobody looked down upon it. So those are, very, those are aspects of homosexuality in the ancient world that we, we don't have today in the same sense. But there was also sort of companion, consensual adult, mutual, what we consider mutual loving, consenting adult relationships as well. It's not as if this was not common as well. It was. And there's lots of references. You, Plato's Symposium has a good illustration of this. So the idea that there's no other, that's the only, that homosexuality in the ancient world was only oppressive and exploitative is not exactly fair, although it certainly was. And so there's usually a couple objections that come to this text as people are wrestling with applying it. Does it still apply today, right? 
And one of the objections is to say, well, Paul is he's condemning abusive same-sex relationships in this text. He's not, he, he's not condemning, he, he didn't have any experience of, of, of loving, covenantal, mutually sort of self-giving um, same-sex relationships, and so it's the exploitative ones. But again, the fact of the matter is that Paul was a well-traveled man in the ancient world. He was a citizen of Rome. He was an educated man. And there were consensual adult same-sex relationships throughout the Roman world alongside of the exploitative ones. And so the idea that Paul wouldn't have been familiar with this is just, it's just not credible historically. And secular historians that study um, homosexuality in the ancient world, um, the idea that somehow Paul wouldn't have been aware of this, are, they find that pretty incredible. But there's another reason that Paul is, Paul, he could have used language as well that related to exploitation here. He would have been familiar with certain key phrases for some of the different partners that would have sort of clued in that he's talking about exploitative things. But he's not. He's, he's actually, what he has is this broader creational context. And the reference to lesbianism or to women, again, um, same sex between women in the ancient world, there was no pederasty there. It was mutual. It was much rarer than, than male homosexuality, but it was present. And so Paul's referencing both, which is pretty incredible. But the other objection that's often brought um, to this text is to say, well, Paul here is condemning heterosexual people who are acting homosexually. In other words, um, people whose orientation is hom- heterosexual having homosexual sex. And again, the, the problem with this interpretation, which has been largely discredited, is that that assumes that Paul has some idea of sexual orientation, or that the ancient world has some idea of sexual orientation, which it simply does not. <clears throat> sexual orientation, sexual identity, as we talk about it today, is a completely 19th century modern construct. And so what's wrong with homosexuality, right? To summarize briefly and to move on. According to Paul, it's not simply that homosexuality lacks a covenantal framework. That there was no covenantal frameworks, and that's why he condemns it. And that's pretty much the argument that we want to make today for finding a way to approve. Paul's argument is much deeper. It is, yes, the covenantal. But he's saying something deeper. He's saying that it violates God's original design of male and female complementarity. That in the beginning, God created the male and female in the image of God, he created him. That, that, that gender difference is a deep part of the mystery of human nature in the image of God. And the coming together of man and woman in marriage represents something that's bigger than simply uh, covenantal. It's reflective of God's very triune life, right? God is three and one. He is three persons and yet one. There's deep difference in the very heart of God. And there's a way that in marriage this gets reflected and again, it's very hard for us, but Paul's saying deeper is that, that this understanding is an assault on personhood. It's an assault on our, on our dignity as human beings as created in the image of God. Now, I know this is hard. <laughs> you have no idea how hard it's to get up here and say this. Perhaps you do. It's hard. It's hard. Um, and I, and I, I know there's such a pull for our culture to want to just, just be completely... Like, yes, open and embrace and, 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 and move forward. But the reality is, is that 
and, and there's a lot of debate in the churches today, and there's a lot of churches that are changing their positions on this. And, and, we, and if, you, if you're in the middle of the sort of debate, you can actually come to the conclusion that actually we don't know what Scripture says, that it's just too complicated and it's not clear at all. And, I, and I, just, I just want to say, I mean, this is not a place to prosecute a case for the traditional position. I'm happy to talk with you in person. The reality is, is this, 2,000 years of Christian history, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, every variety of Protestantism, the, the, the entirety of the canonical witness of Scripture, the early Jewish tradition out of which Christianity has come, has been completely, unambiguously, consistently, adamantly opposed to any form of uh, sort of homosexual relationships that would be approved. And that's really hard for us, I think. It's only been in the last 50 years, really, that the church is all of a sudden in this plate of, of revolution as we think about this. And the problem is, why is this so hard for us to hear? <laughs> you hear these words and they're difficult. And, and perhaps some of you are thinking, this is an assault on me or on my personhood. And I recognize the fact that some of what I've said, especially outside of this church, is, would be construed as hate speech. Just straightforward hate speech. As an assault on the dignity of persons. But I think we just need to step back here for a minute and we have to realize something. That, you know, what we talk about, we as Christians even have embraced this language of sexual orientation, of sexual identity, as if it's something somewhat given with nature, as if it's just there. Well, you have gay people, you have straight people, and you have some, some things in between. But this whole idea of sexual identity and orientation is really a 19th century uh, philosophical construct that largely is due to Sigmund Freud, who in his psychology, as a sort of father of mo- modern psychology, is, had a vehement sort of attack on a biblical orientation and anthropology. And for Freud, your sexual desire, your sexual desire and where you pointed that sexual desire in terms of its gendered object became an identity-forming category for us. And I think what we have to realize is that there was a cosmological revolution in personhood that took place with the invention of the category of sexual orientation, of sexual identity, this idea that somehow the deepest part of me is my, se- my sexual self. I mean, that's where we, ha- that's where we are as a culture now, is, is that we don't have a soul anymore. We have an identity and a sexual identity. And central to my self-realization, my flourishing and my well-being in the world is the, my free ability to, to express my sexual identity and anything, anything that would stand in the way or to tell me that I'm not who my sexual identity says is an assault on my personhood. And you just have to see, friends, that this is a very recent idea in the history of ideas. And it's one that really cuts against not just the biblical tradition, but really the Western philosophical tradition and many traditions of, about what it means to be a person uh, the philosopher Michel Foucault, who himself was a gay man, very uh, important figure in the history of philosophy, in his book, he has a three-volume book called The History of Sexuality. And in that book, he identifies, curiously, he says that before the 19th century, you will never find the word homosexual as a designation of a person. What you find, actually, and this is true with the biblical text, you, you find descriptions of acts. You don't find designations like nouns, like these are the homosexuals, right? Because there was no category for homosexual. 
or heterosexual. They were just sinful sexual acts and non-sinful sexual acts. The reality is, is that, again, this idea of orientation is so deeply woven into our understanding of ourselves that it's almost impossible for us to hear this text and not, and not go crazy. Like, it, it just it seems so terrifying. But friends, this is so important. You are not your sexual identity. <laughs> You're not your sexual identity. Uh, the essayist and um, cultural critic Gore Vidal says, and not a Christian, <laughs> he says, there's no such thing as a homosexual person any more than there's such a thing as a heterosexual person. And so when, we, when we work with these categories, what ends up happening is we obscure the fact. Somehow we make you know, um, heterosexuality is the normal thing, and we sometimes lose the fact that actually, and as I've been saying at length, that friends, we are all sexual sinners. And to identify one particular sort of species of, of sexual sin as is problematic. Okay. So what now? What, what are you, what, what about those people who have same-sex attraction and as hard as they might try to reorient that, they can't. And that is true, friends. I'm not up here saying that you can pray the gay away. Or that if you go through therapy, or if you pray enough, that somehow everything will turn out right. Because the reality is it doesn't always turn out right. Sometimes you can't get rid of those. Just like I talked last week about gender dysphoria and transgender. It's real. It's not made up. It's not, conf- it's not simply like people are making this stuff up. People really do experience these attractions because the reality is this, is that we live in a fallen world. (laughs) And just like gender dysphoria, which is a different kind of thing altogether from same-sex attraction, there is an analogy in that it's a sign that our bodies are fallen and it's a condition of the fall. And the experience of same-sex attraction is not in and of itself sinful. It's a condition of having a fallen body a broken body, one that's been subjected, as Paul says, to frustration, and a body that longs for redemption. It's a body that's disordered, and all of our bodies are disordered in one way or another. But where does that leave the same-sex, same-sex attracted person in the church if they can't sort of figure out how to marry the opposite sex? You know, I've talked a lot about this text, which I so love, in Matthew 19, where Jesus, when the apostles say to Jesus, when he's talking about divorce, and they say, holy smokes, if we can never get divorced, maybe it's better not to get married. And, and Jesus said, well, maybe. Here's another option for you. God, there are eunuchs. Some have been born that way. Some have been made that way by men. And some of them are eunuchs for the kingdom. And that category of the eunuch, and Jesus himself was one of those eunuchs. He was one of those men who forego sexual, physical sexuality and marriage for the sake of the kingdom. He was celibate. He was faithful. And that was his calling, right? And, you know, if, if, if you're new to this conversation in the church, perhaps you, you, you're looking outside and you're like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. And I... I I've had times when I've talked to people about this, and I said, well, there's always the eunuch option. And there's many, there's many opposite-sex attracted people in this church that are single and would love to be married that are not. 
and they're faithfully celibate and single. So it's not as if we're just picking on people who are gay. And there are many people in marriages where there's not a lot of sex for a variety of reasons. The idea that somehow we're singling out or there's unique cross, again, we have to consider the broader reality. And I, I just, there's a number of people in the life of the church historically, but even today, I've mentioned West Hill a lot. There's a guy named Ed Shaw, Sam Albrey, Eve Tushet, and Henry Nowen, people who are faithful, who have struggled with same-sex attraction, that are, that, but believe that the Scripture is clear and the tradition is clear and have sought to live in singleness and faithfulness. Okay. The problem at the end of the day for us is, I don't think, a theological problem. It's not a doctrinal problem that we have. And again, I mean, I'm not suggesting that the, the conversations and that everything's clear and completely, you know, self-evident. And yet I think the, the deepest problem is for us is not doctrinal. It's actually, it's a discipleship problem. It's, it's, the, it's the fact that this seems completely and totally implausible. And, and when, when I mention this, this eunuch option, and I talk about this as a possibility in the life of the church, and I've, I've literally had people laugh in my face. La- laugh in my face. But, um, and it wasn't even you know, a same-sex person that did that. I've had that too. Um, but actually, you know, somebody who was married, happily married, and this the, the, seems ridiculous, right? It just seems completely outlandish. And for sure, friends, I... It's so hard for us because we have friends, close friends, neighbors, family members that are gay, that are in relation, sometimes married, and we think, how in the world, how in the world do I make sense of this? How does this, this does not alienate me completely from them? And I'm going to be honest, I don't know, I don't have all the answers. And, and the people I mentioned that are wrestling, this is a journey and, and as a church, we're trying to learn what it means to hold this position with compassion. And we have to be completely honest that as a church, we have not held it with compassion. We have not. We, we've bludgeoned, we've, we've, we've marginalized, we've, we've tabooed the conflict. We're too afraid to have it. And so people live in the dark or, or, or you get the extreme where they just check out altogether. But again, I, I want to bring your attention back to the plausibility problem because I think the plausibility problem is really the heart of the problem. And the plausibility problem is simply this, is that we cannot imagine a scenario that seems fair or life-giving, probably would be a better word, for people who are single that could be flourishing. And friends, the question that I've been wrestling with for this entire series is this question, how can the church live in such a way that the biblical teachings on sexuality are not only plausible, but compelling and beautiful I can't, I mean, it's not going to be enough for us to say, well, that's wrong, you shouldn't do this. There, there has to be an alternative that's just so beautiful and attractive that it pulls us in that direction, and that's what I've been trying as hard as I can from the pulpit, but also been trying in our community life here together. But what would a positive vision of a vibrant and a flourishing, fulfilling life and fellowship with Christ for same-sex attracted people, but also single people, look like? There's no such thing in this life as being sexually faithful to Jesus that does not involve a cross. <laughs> there's, no, there's just no such thing as being faithful to Jesus sexually that doesn't involve a cross. Whether you're same-sex attracted, opposite, married, or single, or divorced. Because the, the, 
sexuality is a, a fundamental part of our experience, and it's broken, and it's always going to be going off in the wrong direction all the time. And there's a cross. The cross is there. And in many ways, I, I think we just don't even understand what Christianity is in America anymore because we've had such a, we have this idea that somehow Christian life should be easy. It should be able to naturally fit in with my broader identity as an American, as a citizen, as a culturally savvy person. And the reality is, is that the cross says, no, the cornerstone is a rejected stone. Okay, I want to finish up. I, I want to draw your attention briefly back to our text, verse 2. What Paul does here is he, he it's brilliant, and I, I can't sort of pull it apart, but, um, you know, Paul is, pulls a sort of rhetorical sting operation on the Jews. And you can imagine if you're a Jew and you're a moral person and, and you know, man, these Gentiles are just perverse. of all, And then Paul gets to the end here in chapter 2 and he shifts his focus and now he's talking to the Jews and he says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. You religious person. You person that grew up in the church. You person that's really comfortable with your position that homosexuality is wrong. You have no excuse. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The reality is this, friends. What I want to say is that we, those of us who experience what we might call a a, a normal opposite sex attraction are not the only ones who are under God's judgment and God's accountability here. I think as a church, if we're going to have any plausibility, any credibility on this question, whether it's gender dysphoria, whether it's same-sex attraction, whatever the sexual sin it is, we have to change how we live. We have to change how we live. We have to change how we think about our lives as Christians. I think this challenge to the church is a hidden gift to ask us a question, really, what does it mean to be a Christian and to be a church in the 21st century in America? And there's six idols, and I'm going to go through them briefly here. I think there's six idols we have to confront. And the first one is this. It's the idol of homophobia. What is, what is a phobia? It's a fear. Homophobia is fear of gay people, right? And, and a phobia is generally not a reasoned, rational understanding, but actually just a, a prejudicial gut reaction yuck. And a lot of people talk about how you know, they, were, they were traditional in their understanding of, of marriage until they had some gay friends, and then they changed their position. And, and at the end of the day, I, I want you to realize that if you've changed your position on same-sex marriage only now because you have a friend or a relative or even a son or daughter... You, you actually only held that position out of phobia. You're a homophobe. You, you didn't really have a reasonable, rational understanding. You, you just had an instinctual, culturally given reaction against it. But the reality is this, too, is that the church has been a place of incredible homophobia. And, and we, can't, we can't do that, friends. But fear, that's the second idol. I can tell you, I did not want to come up and preach a sermon. I was thinking of ways I could get out of it, but I knew that there's no way you can preach an almost year-long sermon series and not talk about this issue, right? We've, we're afraid on so many levels. We're afraid, we're afraid to have uncomfortable conversations. We're afraid of offending. We're, in the church, we're afraid of, of actually opening up the conversation with people who might actually really struggle with this and not knowing how to answer them. 
And we're afraid of the unresolvedness of it. There's just fear. Fear of the broader culture, fear of ourselves. And friends, we can't be afraid. We can't be afraid to talk about difficult things. We want to all the time. In marriages, we all, you know, we're always avoiding these difficult conversations because they're too hard, but if we don't, they just fester and they, they get bitter and they, they just sow all kinds of dissension and heartache. But there's also another third idol I want to mention is just the, the idol of the nuclear family. Friends, the ideal family is not the man, woman, two child with a minivan in the suburbs. Marriage is a good thing. Children are a good thing. But the reality is, is if we have this nuclear family, and what happens so often in the life of the church is people get married, and they sort of pull away a little bit, and they get, have kids, and then they're a world onto themselves, and they're sort of their own social entity onto themselves. And single people, straight, opposite sex attracted, they talk about how hard it is to be a single in the church because everybody has married and kids, and there's no place for them. They don't belong. So they group together, or they leave. And it's part of it is because of the idolatry of the nuclear family. We don't have an understanding of, of, of this sort of broad openness, which is a sign of the fourth idol, which is individualism. We're so private. We're so obsessed with my own identity, with my own sort of right to be myself. We, we, think, of my, we think of the fullness of ourselves as, as actually complete by ourselves rather than in community. But there's also this idol of sexual identity. We've so sexualized our identities. Straight, gay, whatever. To where we actually think about what is essential about who, what it means to be a human being in terms of this. Friends, your identity is not your sexual orientation or your experience. Your identity is union with Christ. It's Christ is your identity. It's union with Him as a basis of your identity. And then finally this. And it's, it's the life without suffering. You know, it's, important. it's appropriate that we're talking about these things during the season of Lent because the Christian life is a life of suffering. Jesus said it, anyone who wants to follow me must take up his cross. We have a hard time recognizing crosses in our life. Part of being faithful sexually is understanding that there is no life without suffering. I know this is not easy. You know, this is that point in the sermon when I would sort of, sort of be shifting my gears to try to bring Christ in and talk about how, and in a way, Christ has entered into our experience and experienced everything that we have and even deeper. But instead of that, I want to actually invite um, Rusty Daler to come up. Rusty is a member of our church. He's also an elder of our church, and I've asked him to share his story. He is a same-sex attracted man and has struggled with it his entire life. And I can tell you, it's not easy for him to come up here. When we had this conversation a number of months back with Rusty, it's like he looked at me and he's like, and he read my mind, and he's like, you want me to share, do you? <laughs> I'm like, would you? And I said, I don't want to, you know, I don't, if you don't want to, you don't have to. But he's like, no, I, I want to do it. I think it's important. And so Rusty and I, um, we even were... We, even, we didn't plan this, but we even dressed the same today. We're very, Rusty and I right now are very uh, in sync with one another. You, most of you know Rusty. He's an incredible man. He's going to come up and share. Um, and so he's going to close us out with gospel, with a story of grace. Please come, Rusty.
Okay, so when Chris asked me to share, um, my mind, I've been reading through the Old Testament, and my mind immediately focused on um, the wilderness journey of all those Israelites. And I sort of imagined in my mind, after the 40 years, that you know, they finally get to this place of milk and honey and all the things, and there's people standing there outside going, so how was it? Like, what was, the four, what was that like? So it's sort of hard to capsulize for your lifetime in a few pages. So um, I've written something, but it's just a snippet. Um, the other thing that Chris mentioned is it's stinking hard to do this. Um, I've had many sleepless nights. I've not got through this yet without some tears, so just be prepared. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to make it. But just know that there's a lot of emotion in this for me, and um, so let's, let me read to you what I've written. A long time ago, for some of you, in what seems like just a few years past for the rest of us, the year was 1958. The same year Elvis joined the U.S. Army, Toyota started selling cars in the United States, and the hula hoop was first introduced I was welcomed as, bo- as boy number two into the world by my parents, Glenn and Margaret, at slightly over 11 pounds. Okay, women usually gasp at that. <laughs> Mom got through the procedure well enough to have four more children, making us a rather large family of eight. Due to the testimony of our neighbor, we began attending a small Baptist church not far from our home. It's where I learned the message of the gospel through Sunday school flannograph lessons, summer Bible camps, and our regular attendance on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, and Wednesday nights. It was during one of those services that I can still recall Blanche, Gloria, and Mrs. Hirschberger clustered arm in arm singing near the old upright piano. Despite their beautiful voices, the words meant little in the life of a 10-year-old boy. However, many years later, The words that song would prophesy have taken on a much deeper meaning. It's not an easy road we are traveling to heaven, for many are the thorns on the way. It's not an easy road, but the Savior is with us. His presence gives us joy every day. It's not an easy road. There are trials and troubles, and many are the dangers we meet. But Jesus guards and keeps so that nothing can harm us. We'll rest in peace over there. No, no, it's not an easy road. No, no, it's not an easy road. But Jesus walks beside me and brightens the journey and lightens every heavy load. When we say yes to Jesus, no matter what the age we find ourselves, we are blessedly unaware of the roads we will be called to tread or the avenues of life that God will use to make us more into the likeness of his Son. When I committed my life to Christ as a teenager, I understood that to be disciple would generate difficult hardships. Jesus himself asked his followers to take up their crosses and follow him. But I was oblivious to the depths in which some valleys would lead, and equally unaware of the great blessedness in walking with Christ. The journey into my life as a teenager created a distance from many of my peers. 
Being an athlete was in, but playing a trombone in the band, not so much. Bachman Turner Overdrive was cool and far out, while the Carpenters were something other than groovy. Girls in any shape or form were hot, 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 but alas for me, they were not, not, not. While other guys sought out the hottest chick in the room, my eyes turned at the best-looking guy. I heard the gay jokes as well as the sermons at church and knew that something wasn't as it was intended, but what voice did I have to express my feelings? At church, there was condemnation, judgment, and great shame around the topic of homosexuality. In the gay community, there was acceptance and affirmation. So what was a guy, a Christian guy, to do? I hid. After high school, I went to Bible college where I came face to face with a somewhat legalistic culture that provided me with my first taste of Christian community outside the confines of my small church in Ohio. But as I grew closer to my classmates, I grew more distant and unable to share the battle that was raging inside me. Pretending and acting the role became my number one priority. I dated, made great friendships, and was growing in my relationship with God all the while feeling ashamed and embarrassed by this constant battle that I could not shake or seemingly grow out of like some bad childhood habit. At Bible college, the topic would raise its head in a sermon, and Romans 1 would be so often used that I could recite it from memory. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The hidden agony of sensing God's judgment through Paul's words would often pursue me like some horrific nightmare, with this final outcome resulting in my, my eternal destruction. I was a modern-day Pharisee living a lie. There was no hope. I might as well follow my passions and be done with it, and yet it was Peter's sentiment that often echoed in my thoughts. As some of Jesus' followers were leaving, he asked the disciples if they too would desert him, and Peter declared, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I had nowhere else to go, but how was I to rid myself of these chains? I possessed a great familiarity with the proof text against homosexuality in Scripture, most specifically the Old Testament prohibitions in Leviticus 18 and 20, as well as Paul's teaching on the subject in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. But it was the narrative of Scripture, the history and ongoing theme of God's working in the lives of his people, that led me to the conclusion that if my life were to be lived as a true expression of Christ-likeness, it would be have to live in the realm of marriage between a man and a woman or as a single man. I hesitated on considering that singleness would be my lot. In the mind of a 20-something, it was almost too much to consider. I continued to read much on the topic and attended support groups that proved to be of a great encouragement. They were indeed others who fought the same battles that I faced, and their stories gave me hope that change was possible. Several in the group were married, and that appeared to be the ultimate hope for many, but the nagging questions would often resurface. Is my faith strong enough 
to believe that God could change me or would change me. I remember one such meeting, an older man sitting off to the side. He shared his life story, his journeys and struggles. I remember leaving the group and thinking, what if I was to spend my life as a single man? What would that look like? How would I deal with the loss, the loneliness? I prayed often, but, got, but spent much of the turmoil in isolation. Talking openly about homosexuality in the 80s wasn't very popular, and discussing it in church was even less so. When I did get the courage to speak out to friends about it, the answer was often the same, silence. Once mentioned, it was rarely discussed again, which led, led to even more hiding and loneliness. In his book, Hearing God, Dallas Willard writes that loneliness is loose upon the landscape. It haunts the penthouse and the barren apartment, the executive suite and the assembly line, the cocktail bar and the st city streets. It is, as Mother Teresa of Calcutta once said, the leprosy of the modern world. Loneliness and I were great companions for many years. Like old friends, we knew the best times to get together. Holidays were great fun, as were large social gatherings, after-church get-togethers, and my empty social calendar and apartment. I had so adjusted to living alone that I resigned myself to it becoming self-dependent and replacing deep friendships with casual acquaintances. I spent much of my time in my 30s and 40s focusing on my career and job opportunities. It kept me busy, and my life as a teacher provided me a deep sense of the community that I had longed for. Searching for a church community can be a challenging proposition for any person, but as a single, same-sex attracted male, it presented several more. Finding one's way in a world that is married or attached to someone sometimes generated a deeper sense of being alone. Not being able to answer the questions of, where's your wife, or do you have any children, at times were the, a reminder that I was different. When the topic of homosexuality, homosexuality would arise, there was a remembrance back to former President Clinton's don't ask or don't tell policy. It felt like for many years I had placed, I had placed myself on the injured reserve list it was easier to sit on the sidelines than to come out and dare to be a sinner. I regret far too many years. Spent in that passive existence. Chris has talked a great deal in the past weeks of a blessedness and suffering that the trials and hurts that fill our lives can be received as blessed encounters with a suffering Jesus that proceed to lead us to glorious and eternal resurrection. In the midst of my pain, I could almost never relate to that. I was far removed from any sense of growth as a follower of Christ, but there was, in the midst of the trial, the awareness of God's abiding presence. It was not simply cheering and he was not simply observing and watching from afar, but he understood the pain. Because he himself had carried it to the cross on my behalf. And having carried it three days later, his resurrection released me from my own. Living into that reality has been ever constant.
has been, and ever remains my hope. In West Hill's book, he relates the conversation with a close friend, Chris, concerning the battle he himself faced with homosexuality. One of the comments to West stood out to him and as to me when he read when he read it. Origen, he said, the great theologian of the early church, believed that our souls existed with God before we were born. What if he were right? I don't believe he was, but imagine for a moment that he were. Imagine yourself standing in the presence of God, looking down from heaven on the earthly life you're about to be born into, and God says to you, Wes, I'm going to send you into the world for 60 or 80 years. It will be hard. In fact, it will be more painful and confusing and distressing than you can now imagine. You will have a thorn in your flesh, a homosexual orientation that is the result of your entering a world that sin and death have broken, and you may struggle with it all your life. But I will be with you. I will be watching every step you take, guiding you by the Spirit, supplying you with grace sufficient for each day. And at the end of your journey, you will see my face again. And the joy we shared then will be born out of the agonies you faithfully endured by the power I gave you. And no one will take that joy, that solid resurrection joy, which, if you experienced it now, would crush you with its weight away from you. Music has also played an intricate role in the offerings of strength and encouragement for me throughout the years. I can remember specific times when a song would provide it a much-needed respite for a weary soul. One such moment found me driving along the interstate back in the 80s, feeling a bit overwhelmed and defeated by far too many challenges a 20-something should be required to bear. The voice of Jamie Owens Collins, a Christian performer, reached me from the radio begging me to reconsider. I still find myself repeating her lyrics all these years later. So you've lost your will to live. Seems like you're down to your last friend. And the weight of the world keeps trying to pull you in. Don't give up. Don't give in. Give it all to him, for he cares so much more than you know. When it seems who you really want to be is someone you'll never become, just look how far you've come. I stand before you today as a blessed man who, with God's grace and forgiveness, has come a very, very long way. I would have never predicted the manner in which God has used my struggles to mold me into the person he wants me to be. The beauty of the past is the ability to trace God's hand transforming us in the most trying of circumstances. We are and forever shall be in his care. Often ever seeing a film or reading a book or hearing some sermon, two words flow to the surface of my mind demanding a response. So what? My narrative might have generated an array of personal reflections. Nice story. I was touched by the openness and honesty. I'll consider my future responses to gay people. 
I'm so glad I've never had to deal with something like that. However, in the remains of what is left of today, might I probe you to consider three things. First and foremost, the life of each of it and every believer can never be abundantly lived in isolation. Far too long I lived with the cultural mindset of, I can accomplish anything if I just put my mind to it. I tried staying in the shadows, somehow believing that the shadows would protect me. Shadows are very safe for a while. They provide a brief respite from the trials of the day, but they are never intended for long-term viability. Spiritual growth thrives in an atmosphere of openness and honesty. Seek out someone. Stay out of the shadows. Secondly, the church needs to be a place of refuge and support if we are to not lose heart and give in to the demands and desires of the bodies we now possess. The era of don't ask, don't tell will only create far too many stories similar to my own. For years, I felt as if I lived in a Christian timeout. Man, that would be hard. I'll pray for you is far too often the catchphrase of the complacent and unconcerned. The church needs an army of believers led by the model of the man from Cyrene, known as Simon. He came alongside Jesus and carried his cross. Seek out and pray that God would help you to be a cross-bearer for someone else. Lastly, please refrain from making me your poster boy for all things gay and homosexual. I don't have all the answers and still struggle in knowing how to relate to a culture that is constantly changing. I do know that finding hope and joy in this life comes foremost in finding Jesus and not one's personal understanding of his or her own sexual orientation. Our struggles play a role in who we are, but they do not define us. God works through each of us in unique and different ways, but as believers, we all share the same journey and the same destination. I would like to leave you with a reminder written by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians with my own personal caveat. Your struggle is not the same as mine. Your battles, however, are just as challenging as the ones that I've shared. Your thorn in the flesh seeks to defeat and to destroy the hope that you have within. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians some 2,000 years ago, he addressed his letter to a people of a different time and culture, and yet his words still resonate today. His encouragement to them is also my encouragement to you. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Pray with me. God, my story is merely one of the many that sit here in this room this morning. We are lost and broken in so many ways. Without you, there's no way, no chance to get home. 
Help us to take up the pain that we bear and follow you no matter the cost. Forgive us when we stumble and fail. Make us into the men and women you desire us to be. We lift our lives up to you. We are an offering. Lord, use our voices, use our hands, use our lives, for they are yours. We are an offering.